Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 39. Have you started to use generators in Python? Are you unsure why you would even use one over a regular function? How do you use the special send method and the yield from syntax? This week on the show, we have Reuven Lerner to talk about his PyCon Africa 2020 talk titled Generators, Coroutines, and Nanoservices. Reuven helps developers around the world become more fluent in Python. We talk about some of his teaching techniques and also how he continues to learn. Reuven's a believer in the continued practice of Python through exercises. We discussed his book, Python Workout, and his weekly Python exercise courses. This episode is brought to you in part by Scout APM. Scout APM is application performance monitoring designed to help developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hi, Ruben. Nice to talk to you. Super, super happy to be here. I wanted to start off talking a little bit about your website in general, and I thought the title is kind of interesting of teaching Python and data science around the world and how that might have changed over the last uh, year here. Why is is something going on? (laughs) (laughs) Is there news that I missed? (laughs) Um, So... Maybe that's gone to your part of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I've been doing consulting. I opened my consulting firm in 95, And I was originally doing a combination of programming and consulting. And very early on, I think it was like early 96, I had someone ask me to do some training. And it was always part of what I did. But it was probably about 10, 15 years ago that I decided, hey, this is something that I really enjoy doing. And there's demand for it. And why not? So I basically went whole hog into just doing training. And pretty soon, I then just started doing only Python and Python-related training. I mean, I still do like uh, Git. And I'm starting to ramp up again and doing some Postgres stuff, but really, it's almost all Python. And I was thinking about how can I describe what I do to people, or how can I describe to people what I do? (laughs) What I do to people is torture them. Um, (laughs) And and I realized, well, I have like what I think is a super fun job where I typically travel around. Last year, I was uh, in the U.S., the U.K., Europe, India, and China in addition to being in Israel, and I go and sort of come in and I talk to them and teach them how to improve their Python skills and increasingly their data science skills as well. So that's all fun and well, but yeah, the pandemic has changed things. On the one hand, it's changed everything. On the other hand, it's changed nothing. So let's change nothing in that my clients are all high-tech companies where their people are maybe working from home, but they're still working and they still have a demand for training. And so I'm still doing it. And even before the pandemic, I was doing one or two weeks a month of training on either WebEx or Zoom. So now instead of being, say, 25% of my time, it's 100% of my time. The big difference is that companies have started to realize, you know what, maybe people are not interested in spending all of their time in front of a screen for family and social and entertainment and work. And oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to throw you into training. So I've started to mix it up a bit where instead of doing a full day of training, we'll do a half day. So instead of like 
four full day sessions. We'll do eight half day sessions, or we'll just do like a two hour session on a specific topic, almost like an extended conference talk specifically for that company. And so have them, they'll watch my video course, then we'll have a Q and a session. So I've had to sort of mix it up more and be more creative and experimental, but I figure they're experimenting. I'm experimenting and somehow we'll get through this with all sorts of new models for doing training. Yeah. I think that's, great that you know you're able to kind of change it up and see the demands that are on everybody i keep hearing about these reports of people just sort of the exhaustion of trying to communicate over these means you know via video communication and uses all these different sort of parts of your brain (laughs) and so i think that idea of like having part of your course be offline let the person study at their own pace or whatever and then following it up i think are you finding that is working well so it works well but people then need to find time slash motivation to actually watch the video courses. And that's actually been a problem. So uh, one of the clients where I'd been doing that, they actually pulled back from doing that. They said, we're just going to do like live in-person courses online, but in person, because people felt like, yeah, we want to watch the videos. Yeah, we want to get through the course. Yeah, we want to get to the Q&A. But they felt so much pressure from work that they couldn't really get to that. So we sort of had to backtrack a bit on that front, at least with one company where it's doing it a lot. But in others, they've enjoyed it quite a bit, where I come in and they've actually watched the videos. So I think it has a lot to do with company culture and how much their managers are willing to say, yeah, it's worth it as an investment for our people to be encouraged to watch these courses and take them, as opposed to, well, in your own free time, after you're done doing everything for work and your family, sure, go watch it. You're lucky we're paying for it for you. Right. <laughs> company culture spe- has, has a lot had a lot to do with it. In fact, company culture has a lot to do with how comfortable they are even taking online courses. Where the companies that have been doing it for years, they're just continuing to do it. And for them, it's not a big deal to do a full day online. Whereas some of the others, they're shell-shocked by the idea. Like I see, the engineers don't know how to handle themselves online in terms of online learning. They've just never done it before. So I, I always say, like, I have to sort of fill the room. Like, if I'm, if I'm in a, a country where the culture is not one of engaging with the teacher very much, specifically China, this happens a lot, where the culture there is one of, you listen to the instructor, you say, uh-huh, 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 and if you don't understand it, it's your fault for not understanding. You don't say to the teacher, hey, I think you got something wrong. Oh, my gosh. This is, of course, diametrically opposite from Israel, where they will they delight in telling the teacher that they're wrong all the time. So, <laughs> so like, so in China, I like, I've developed sort of a technique or techniques for, as I call it, filling the room. Like I have to sort of be more, boy, louder, be more entertaining, sort of, you know, dial it up to 11 on all fronts. And so I've tried to do that online a little more. So even if people are a little reticent to engage, they'll do it more. And that, that seems to be working. Okay. It's still not the same as being a classroom, but it's, it, it, it could be a heck of a lot worse. I used to teach in classroom and, you know, do like eight hour kind of classes like you're, you're talking about. And some of that involved what I always would joke calling it infotainment, you know, like that you have to really figure out like an act almost to make it engaging, make it funny. But then also the whole trick of like engaging with them. And so I would constantly be peppering them with questions as I went. Is that a technique that you use in, in a case like that where you're trying to pull engagement out of them? 
I do, I do ask some questions. I try to, like, I, I'm constantly saying, you know, what do you think? What do you think? Well, you know, what, what uh, sort of who has questions about this? It very much depends on the group. Okay. Sometimes they're really active. Uh, if it feels like I'm pulling teeth, then I'll try to you know, pull a little harder. <laughs> <laughs> and if that, I don't get anything for that, then fine. I'll just sort of you know, roll my eyes and keep going. Usually there are at least a handful of people, though, who really respond. And they're like, oh, I always want to know about X and Y and Z. And the, even just having a handful of people like that can really make all the difference. Yeah. But by, by the way, like you, when you mentioned enter, like entertainment and so forth, I constantly am looking to stand up comedians for not necessarily for jokes, but for like their techniques and keeping an audience engaged. Yeah. Because they are masters at it. They get up on a stage, they're able to speak, and everyone just follows them for an hour. Now they're not necessarily trying to get any technical information out of it, but I, I watched a, a class that Steve Martin gave with Masterclass about how to be a good stand-up comedian. And I definitely got some ideas from there about how to refine it, how to present it. Not necessarily to be funnier. My family will assure you that that's not possible. But <laughs> but um, sure. but basically to try to engage. Right. No, that sounds good. That sounds like a good resource. I have a subscription to that too, and I've watched a variety of things and been meaning to to dive into that because I really liked his book. Also, Born Standing Up was really an interesting book. But I think it's cool that he went back and did a, a course on on stand up. I follow the same kind of ideas. There's all these different sort of styles that you can kind of get into, and I I feel like it's almost a shtick, you know. After a while, like I'm guessing you end up repeating a lot of the same subjects and teaching a lot of the same kinds of things, and so you have kind of a pattern, and you can almost maybe do it in your sleep. <laughs> for sure, for sure. I mean, there's certain like I know what story, and even sometimes what joke I'm going to tell at which point, or and especially uh, so so I'm a strong believer in not just giving the answer. Like, it's very easy to say, here's the program. Like, like give an exercise and say, okay, here's the solution. But that's not really going to help because seeing the solution is not as good as seeing the process of getting to the solution. So whenever I give them an exercise and they have time to work on it, then I go through the process of solving it. And I will always try to, I don't, I don't want to say make mistakes, but do things that I say, here, right. there's going to be a bug, watch. And so as they go through sort of the thought process, and, and I've repeated this, you know, hundreds of times in certain cases. So yeah, like, fine, but, but it works. And, and you know what, if it doesn't work, then I'm constantly trying to refine and improve. And so each class is a little different because I'm hoping that I can learn something from where I didn't get it quite right the previous time. I, I like that idea of dropping things in that, you get the unexpected result, and hopefully that is going to, you know, the smart people that are staying quiet <laughs> are, like, kind of engaged in the point they're like, oh, is he going to spot it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and things like that, or the idea of, like, oh, okay, well, you know, it's not an end of the end of the entire session if we have an error or we have some kind of failure here. That's going to be really common. And so this is a technique that I'm teaching you of how to dive through this and, and figure out your own way to troubleshoot. And that's such a huge part of it. Whereas if it's just presented to you correctly at all times, very often that's a skill that kind of gets missed. It's, you know, it's hard to teach troubleshooting unless you have trouble. <laughs> you know that I like that <laughs> to kind of have them work with. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So that kind of leads me into talking a little bit about conferences, and you know, partly why I wanted to have you on was I I liked your PyCon 2020 Africa talk where you're talking about generators and generator functions, and kind of diving into them and talking a little bit about how they can kind of act a little bit like coroutines and nano services, and I thought that was really kind of cool 
through that, it was neat to watch your teaching techniques. And that's kind of why I wanted to start with, with what we did there of you know, talking about ways to kind of teach and, and show. And one of the first things that you started to show, which I always have to admit on the show that I'm not the most knowledgeable Python person, but it's a real learning process for me. But I had not seen the uh, disassembler for Python bytecode, the dis, D-I-S, before. And you almost immediately start using that. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. That would be such a great way to teach a concept. And is that something you've used for a long time? So I only found out about this a few years ago. I can't remember exactly when. And I said, whoa, like, so now we can interpret the bytecodes. That is amazing. And I probably had seen it on a few occasions, but it took a while to click. So I've had mixed results showing it to students. Sometimes they'll be like, whoa, that is amazing. Now we understand how things are working behind, you know, uh, you know behind the scenes. But then I'll have people sometimes say, just like a week or so ago, someone said, why are you showing this to us? How is this going to help us write better programs? <laughs> and it's like, okay, th- this was an advanced Python course where part of the stated goal is understand how the language works so that you can do a better job with it. I, I mean, look, I am definitely not a super low-level kind of guy. Right. Right. Like, uh, you know, in college, we had to take both hardware and software courses, and my eyes sort of glazed over at the hardware courses. And all right, fine. So I'm a typical software kind of guy. But certainly at the software layer, I I think one of the amazing things to me is how Python especially, if you understand a few basic rules and ideas, the rest of the language just sort of falls out of that. And so the elegant simplicity of the language's implementation, and as I like to say, Python uses Python to implement Python. (laughs) So if you understand that like, All this, at the end of the day, is just a bunch of strings and lists and tuples being used in clever ways to implement the language that has strings and lists and tuples. Wow, that's amazing. And it explains so many of these weird error messages you get that are consistent with how the thing is implemented, but might not make sense unless you understand how it's working under the hood. Yeah. And the example you were showing is you started with a function and you have, in this particular case, I think you had multiple return statements. Is that right? Oh, yeah. And using dis and then dis show code and then including the function inside of that, disassembled it and showed the bytecode of it. And what was cool is then it, it proved to your audience the point that it doesn't get to these other return statements. It's it's done, you know? And so Python, being Python, said, okay, well, this is all that's going to run. This is all I need to compile. Am I right in explaining it that way? Yeah, and, and I must say, I was actually surprised by that, right? Because I, I've always heard... And understood. And I'm, again, I'm not like a deep compiler innards kind of guy, but I'd always understood that the byte compiler in Python is pretty dumb overall. That it's more or less a one to one cars. By the way, like the people who are writing it are not dumb. Like if you're listening to this and we want them, definitely not dumb, right? right? But like that, that the compiler was kept super simple on purpose, that it was more or less a one-to-one correspondence between your Python code and the bytecodes. And here's a clear case in which they said, you know what, why? Why write these bytecodes if we're never going to be able to get there? Let's just dump that. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And I always feel like if I have an aha moment, probably someone else out there will have that similar sort of aha moment. So, hey, why not share it with them? (laughs) I definitely did. I like that idea too. Like, Python is not trying to be clever <laughs> about this. It's like, oh, well, let's save all this and compile all this extra stuff, even though we're not going to use it. And, you know, I know what they mean. And it's like, I don't know what you mean. This is what you wrote, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is all I'm going to do. <laughs> and the other thing that you kind of focused on that I thought was really kind of cool in the talk is you talked a little bit more about exceptions and the idea of exceptions inside of Python. You know, a lot of people immediately do this sort of equal, equal error, you know, kind of comparison. That's right. 
No, it, actually, exceptions uh, can be used for a, a variety of things. The example that you're using in this case is uh, that it can be used for for signaling. Do you want to dive into that a little bit, like how you kind of came across that? So, yeah. Well, here's here's the uh, idea that I that I often sort of try to get across, which is your program typically runs sort of one line, then another line, then another line, you know, one after the other. And that's that's all fine and well. And exceptions basically are a way of breaking into that. That they say, wait, wait, there's something unusual going on here. The, the analogy I often make is you're having a conversation with your friend and their cell phone rings. And they're like, hold on a second, I got to take this, right? Uh, maybe this doesn't happen as much in the U.S. as it does in Israel. But like in Israel, it's, oh, clearly the person calling me is more important than the person who's speaking to me face to face. Wow. Uh, don't, don't take it the wrong way, good friend of mine. And so... Python is like, oh, I better answer this call. Something urgent has come up. And so it's often going to be an error, right? It's often going to be, hey, I don't know what to do in this situation, or like, you know, worst case, you're out of memory or something. But it can also just be, hey, like, there's something weird going on here that you should know about and you should take care of right away. Um, it's like this alternative. I would normally say like an alternative return structure, like a parallel communication channel, right? So you've got the regular communication channel, you've got this parallel one, and I just don't think people make use of it as much as they could or should. Now, that doesn't mean we should start like replacing everything in our programs with with exception handling. That could be (laughs) a little hard to understand and maintain. But especially when it comes to generator functions, when they're being used as coroutines, the cool thing is you can say, hey, I want to instigate i want to basically raise an exception inside of this other code because normally raise allows you to say i am experiencing an issue i want someone else to notice me and do something right but in in the case of generators you can say i'm going to tell that coroutine that it should raise an exception and if it then handles that exception you can basically be sending it into a new state you can almost think of it as like a state machine that you're moving from one state to another yeah that's cool I guess we could dive back a little bit further and talk about kind of just the general idea of generator functions and how they're different from like a regular function. And I know it's not, it's it's hard in the podcast form. I always thought about that where it's like, I don't want to make it a tutorial, but what is this idea of a generator and how is that kind of like a unique thing comparatively to what's happening with a function? And then we can maybe go a little further into where, where you're talking about this idea of like the coroutine idea. Sure, sure. And, and by the way, yeah, I mean, we're recording, but I'm still raving my hands as, as I usually do when I talk. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> well, we'll send stills for people to watch on the, the show notes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so look, a regular function when you run it, it runs, as I was describing before, linearly. Like it goes, starts at the top, ends at, ends at the bottom, typically, and it returns something. It returns a value. And so the idea of having a function return multiple values is just laughable. Like you can call it multiple times, you get multiple values, but each time you call it, you're getting one thing. Right. And a generator function is a bit different. A generator function basically returns multiple times. But we don't use the return statement there because we do retur- use return while well, it's gone and done. So instead, we use the yield keyword. And yield basically says, here is a value, but I'm not giving up yet. I'm just going to go to sleep, and I'll be around when you next need me. And so here's a value. I'm going to sleep. Oh, I'm up. Okay, here's another value. And, and this is used, this happens through the iterator protocol, the communications between us and a generator function, or the result of running a generator function, which is a generator, is that every time we say next to it, give me your next thing, give me your next thing, give me your next thing, it's going to wake up, 
go until through the next yield and return something. Wake up, go through the next yield and return something. So you could do something as simple as, yeah, some sort of iteration. But you can also sort of spoon feed information from a file or from the network or even like infinitely large data. But obviously, we can't fit infinitely large data into our computers unless you get a really serious upgrade. And so in that case, you want to get it little by little by little, perhaps ad infinitum. So generative function allows us to do that. The thing is, generative functions have uh, generative functions are great, but this whole idea of well, let's keep it around and have what's known as a coroutine, that's been around for a while, but I haven't seen people say like what we can and should do with it other than some esoteric sorts of descriptions. I think it was David Beasley who gave like a, a few talks in the past about like cool things you can do with it. But those got kind of complex, even you know, even by my, my standards, although David Beasley is like really smart. So like when he does something, if it's, if it's complex, like he's the right guy to be addressing it. Um, I think he was also the guy who gave me the idea of like describing as the, the function going to sleep, which I thought was a fantastic metaphor. Yeah. And so people have talked about coroutines, meaning let's keep this subroutine, let's keep this function around and fired up and ready to give us an answer. And whenever we need something new, we're, we're not going to exactly say next to it. We don't want just the next thing, but we're going to feed it data. We're going to, like, it's two-directional communication. So it's not just give me your next thing, give me your next thing, give me your next thing. It's give me your next thing based on this. Give me your next thing based on that. So it can be, okay, you have infinite, like, you can give me information from the stock market, which is obviously an infinite supply of data. Give me your next stock trade of ABCD company or EFGH company or whatever. And the coroutine then has already connected to the service for the stock market. It's already all fired up. All it needs to do is get your input, like do something and then yield it back to you. Get next input. And it'll just be waiting there. It's like, a, I don't know, you know, a butler or something waiting there. Right. And so I often thought of coroutines as like a solution looking for a problem. Like, okay, we can do this. Like, now what? Now that we've got this great technology. Now, most of the people in the Python world were like, oh, this is a great solution for concurrency. And so AsyncIO is based on a, a slow, sort of slightly mutant version of this. But I was like, well, I wonder if there's some examples how we can at least think about coroutines and perhaps use them in our system outside of the AsyncIO context. And I'm not sure if I made a compelling case for where they can be used in production, but I'd like to think at least, you know, I convinced myself that's an interesting idea and that it helps to explain that whole ecosystem of generative functions and coroutines better to at least evaluate whether and where we'd want to use them. Yeah, I like how, you know, through that, you're kind of explaining this idea of a little historical context of async IO and this idea of things kind of in the background running, like you said, kind of sleeping or napping <laughs> and being ready to... <laughs> <laughs> ready to go and in memory and and that's going to be efficient in the sense that there's not you're not going to have to repeat the whole code to to get everything all set up it's it's sort of staged if you will and ready to receive it and then to use that you're using this other generator sort of keyword of send right to to make that happen to send new values into the generator to to have it trigger these new things that's right that's right that typically when you work with a generator or anything with the uh, iterator protocol. You're just saying, next, next, next. Give me your next thing, give me your next thing, next, next thing. And send basically says, well, hold on a second. Right? We don't just want to ask for something. We can provide some input. And that input can be data that we want to process. It can be input like you know, for the stock market, or it can be choosing, uh, I give the example of like a telephone operator, right? I want this or I want that. Or it could be something even a little bigger than that, right? I want to change data sources, right? So, so you can really be affecting this 
little, as I call it, like a nano service, right? People like to call about microservice architectures, but that requires having a separate computer. And this is not even a separate process, right? I, I'm going to save you money. You don't need a separate computer. You can have it in process. And obviously it's going to use memory there, but the overhead is so incredibly tiny that it can just be a, a way of sort of conceptualizing and compartmentalizing it in a different way than you would with, say, an object-oriented system. Scout APM is application performance monitoring designed to help developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With a developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, Scout helps you quickly pinpoint and resolve performance abnormalities like N plus one queries, memory bloat, and more. So you can spend less time debugging and more time building a great product. And with Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails, you can rest easy knowing Scout's on watch to help you resolve performance issues before your customers ever see them. Give Scout APM a try today with a free 14-day trial and experience firsthand why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. As an added bonus for RealPython podcast listeners, Scout APM will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash realpython. So one of the things that we kind of touched on briefly is that you're setting up the service and getting it all ready to go. And then the trick might be eventually saying, okay, especially if you're connected to a database or connected to some other kind of online service or what have you, that you know, eventually you may want to stop <laughs> service. And that kind of gets back into uh, where we were talking about maybe using exceptions again to, to do that for us. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can you know throw the exception there. You can basically say, okay, well, well first of all, you, there is a way to like close down the, the generator. But I think it's kind of fun to like you know use these exceptions as commands as saying okay you know time time to go and then it can sort of throw itself the exception as it were catch it and then shut down okay you know you know you need me anymore that's fine I you know no hard feelings right and you can have sort of like shut down code there to tell it what to do yeah yeah exactly like you you could really have this whole again for lack of a better term like this whole external service that's internal to your program and to your process. So it's not really running in parallel. It's just compartmentalized and separate. Because remember, a generator function at the end of the day is a function. So all of its variables are local. They're not available to everyone else. So it's private storage. And, and that storage and, and that state sticks around across the, uh, across the yields. So if you want to connect to a database, you want to connect to a web service, you want to connect to a file, you want to connect to all these things, you don't have that startup uh, headache. And if you want to you know, switch horses midstream, as it were, you can do that. And if you want to shut down, you can do that. Um, if you want to have multiples of these running, each instance, as it were, of your generator can be connected to a separate service. And then you can even iterate over them. And oh my goodness, I've just re-implemented AsyncIO. It's <laughs> just <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <is> pretty slick. <laughs> yeah, cool. You've given a handful of different other examples. Uh, are there other like kind of unusual examples you've seen of generators being used? Uh, maybe that are not appropriate. <laughs> Ooh, you know, not so much. Wow, I see lots of inappropriate code, but not so much inappropriate generators. Okay, I, I, I would say pe- people are often just sort of mystified by generators in general. Okay, right? They've heard about them. They might kind of sort of understand them. I mean, a cool example of where I never ever would expect to see generators used is in Pytest. So if you have set up a PyTest fixture, 
And a fixture, basically, if you're testing with PyTest, and a fixture is like, I expect to get such and such data back all the time. So like, you know, it can, it can pretend to be a file, pretend to be a service, something like that. And in a lot of other testing frameworks, you have like startup, uh, you know, setup and tear down. So the way they did that in PyTest is if your fixture is not a regular function, but if it's a generator function, then the stuff before the yield is the setup and the stuff after the yield is the teardown. Now, I don't know who thought of this and it's, I, I never would have. It's genius, right? Because it allows you to basically split this function into two parts. And the yield part is almost like it's a, like a clear marker between the, the, the first part and the second part. So I probably, if someone in my class were to suggest that, I'd say that's inappropriate. But because it comes from the people of PyTest, I'll just call it genius. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. Um, I've definitely seen it used for... You mentioned you know reading in files, so you know I think a common uh, one is reading in um, lines from a from a text file or you know book or something like that, and kind of like you know processing them as they go. I've seen it used for really large data files, um, you know loading in like a massive CSV, something that maybe wouldn't fit in memory, and so this is kind of a nice way that it can kind of process as it goes, as opposed to having to like ingest this huge file and, and also the overhead of like waiting for all that to come in to move to the next step, being able to yield kind of partially. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just say like, normally when you read from a file, you get it one line at a time and that's not, it's not technically a generator, right? right? But it is implementing the iterator protocol. And so it is not using that much memory. The trick is if you're reading in from like a file with a certain format, okay, right? So you don't want to get one line at a time. You want to get three lines at a time. Or you want to get between you know two markers for each record there. And that's where a generator can be just fantastic, where you know that you're getting in a record each time, but you don't have to worry about how much memory it's going to be. And you don't have to worry about, oh, I don't care about line by line. I care about record by record. And generators are just like perfectly, perfectly suited for that sort of thing. Okay, so you can sort of shape how you want to process things at a time. You can say, this is the, the chunk size that is what I need to be able to do this process. That's right. So, like, even like in my courses and uh, in my book, I have an exercise that I call read n. So, read n is a generator function that takes two arguments. It takes a file name and n, big surprise, which is the number of lines that you want. And so, basically, I can say, oh, I want to get my files three lines at a time or four lines at a time. And then each chunk is indeed that many lines long. And it wouldn't be too much of a stretch then say, well, I want it between, you know, these markers. So, I only want to get I want to get the dates or the timestamps from this log file. And so the generator will just sort of skip over everything else, giving you timestamp after timestamp after timestamp. Nice. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your book. It's uh, from Manning. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's from Manning, uh, Python Workout. And it's a collection of ostensibly 50 exercises to improve your Python fluency. Realistically, it's uh, really, it's like 200 exercises because every exercise then has three bonuses that we call beyond the exercise. And so look, just about every time I teach, people say to me, okay, like we've had a course, that's great, but like, this isn't enough. And anyone who's learned anything, right, it doesn't have to be programming, knows that it's not enough to have a course of several days. You need to practice. You need to, I always make the analogy to learning a foreign language. I mean, I've been studying Chinese for a few years, and every day I make some progress, and every day I'm like, oh, I can't believe I don't remember this and this and this. And if I take two weeks off, then, like, forget it, uh, my fluency is down. And so the same is going to be true with programming. So when people ask me, how can they improve their fluency? I say, keep practicing. And so what I did was I collected a whole lot of exercises that I've used in my courses, plus 
added a bunch of additional ones. And so the idea is each of the exercises should take maybe 10 minutes or so, really not that long. And each of them sort of been through the ringer with my courses or most of them been through the ringer with my courses. So I like, they, they often have like some tricks in them. Someone just emailed me now from one of my online courses saying, you always make the question seem so simple. And then I discovered they're not that simple. <laughs> so <laughs> evil laugh. Exactly. <laughs> but, but the idea is that if you work through the exercise of the book, you're going to be then more fluent. You're going to, you're going to be able to reason at a higher level and not always be saying, oh, wait a second, what are the arguments that I pass to this? And when I use enumerate, what am I getting back? And how, like, you want to just have sort of a general fluidity to your use of Python so that you can then get more things done. I often joke that I want to put Stack Overflow out of business <laughs> by like, how, yeah, fat chance, right? But like, basically, because people shouldn't have to look up these simple things on a regular basis, they should have the sense of fluency that oh, I'll just run ahead and then I can sort of attack things uh, at a higher level of abstraction and not worry about the nitty gritty. Nice. How long did it take you to uh, to make the book? Right, I guess. <laughs> it sounds like combining things. <laughs> so, well, basically, I, I originally self-published the book and I published it on my website. At that point, my mailing list was really tiny. I had a, like a bunch of people bought it. And at that point, actually, Manning came to me and said, we like your book, we'd like to republish it. And I was like, oh, that's ridiculous. I am an entrepreneur. I, I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't quite this haughty with them, but I'm sure this is how it came off, right? I, like, I will sell my book on my website and become a multimillionaire based on this. So a few years of humbling sales later, I came back to them and I said, hey, you remember my book? And they were like, oh, yeah, sure. And I said, would you still be interested in republishing it? And they warned me and they said, listen, we are going to require a lot of edits, a lot of improvements because we see a lot of potential here. But like it needs a lot of, I don't know if they said it needs a lot of help, but like they want to really crank it up a level and they were great. I, I have only the highest praise for Manning and the editing staff. They made tons of suggestions that made the book way, way better than I did on my own. Their editing was better. Like everything, everything, everything. I, I really have great things to say about Manning and working with them. And I'm working on a proposal for a new book, finishing up hopefully in the next day or two for a new book about pandas in a similar, similar sort of vein. In the original book, when you were creating it, what was something that you were super excited about including in the book that you felt like, oh, this is going to be the unique thing that makes this book special? Well, the, the unique thing was, I think, just the approach to the book itself, which is this is not a book to teach you Python. This is the second Python book you buy, or this is the book you buy after you've taken a course. I'm not I, now. There are many, especially you know, thanks to Manning, um, there are many sidebars in the book now that sort of explain things. But the original goal was you've taken a Python course, you want to really hammer, you know, hammer through a whole bunch of additional exercises to get that fluency, where do you turn? Where do you turn? There was nothing really on the market, so far as I can tell, to help you with that. And so I took a bunch of exercises from my courses. I invented a bunch of additional exercises, tried them in courses, and then put them in the book. And so that was sort of the process. I think it's really neat that you're like able to sort of take something from your experience of teaching and combine it in this new way and like also it's neat that it's like, oh, well, okay, you want more experience with this. Here, this is a book that would allow you to practice these these techniques and kind of build on top of it. I feel like that's something that's been missing, like you mentioned, your language training. I don't know what software you use or what kind of tools you use to, to learn Chinese, but I always found that you know using a single tool never quite worked for me <laughs> in learning language stuff. Um, I always ended up having to mix them up. 
That is 100% true. So like with Chinese, so I have daily lessons, like five days a week with a teacher in China. So that's like, that definitely helps. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. She, she and I get to know, have got to know each other very well over the years. But in addition, like I know if it's just talking to her, it's not enough, right? I also need to try to practice some reading. And so there, there's an app or two that I use for that. I try what I'm really, really feeling ambitious to like the, the New York Times is the Chinese version. So I try to look through some of that and I'm like, oh, wow, this is real, that's like this is really hard. And my teacher's like, why are you reading that? That is not interesting. I'm like, I think it's interesting. <laughs> but you're know, sort of trying to get it from all different sorts of sides and all sorts of different ways. And of course, when I was going to China three to five times a year teaching there, that was, as I described it, like my end of semester final exam, where I'd go and Every time, what do you know? I could read more signs. I could communicate with people more. Yeah, and that was that was just an incredibly, incredibly satisfying experience. Do you um, end up watching any? I mean, you mentioned reading the you know New York Times or what have you. Do you try watching media and and see if you can pull it off without like the subtitles or what have you? I've tried. So there's this great podcast. Basically, it's called like Listen to a Story, Learn Chinese, and they're still a little fast for me. Yeah. But I've tried, I, I take early morning walks now, especially with the pandemic. Like you gotta like it's before sunrise and try to walk for a long time before coming into teaching. Yeah. And so I've tried to start listening to them more and more. And I know, I know that if I just give it like half an hour a day for four or five months, and I know like you need that sort of time time perspective, then it'll not seem fast anymore. So I just need to like convince myself, don't do it once every week or two, do it once a day. Because you just need that exposure. You need to sort of get your brain thinking in that way. That's kind of what we were talking about this in the same parallel subject of talking about learning Python. And it's definitely a thing that I did is, you know, I started listening to podcasts and I was listening to Michael Kennedy's podcast and he was on and we were talking about this idea of like, you know, it's a form of language immersion. You know, you're sort of surrounding yourself with these concepts and you can kind of then have these aha moments, even if something isn't completely making sense, where you're like, oh, that's what they were talking about, you know, and, and, and like, it's like starts to make sense again. And I, I think that's really kind of cool, you know, it, you know, it depends on what level you're at and, and so forth. But I don't, is that, are you having that experience? Yeah. Oh, there are definitely times like, I mean, when I'm there, it happens a lot where someone will say something to me, I'll be like, oh, oh, I learned that's in class. I can't believe it's like really useful. <laughs> what do you know? Or like, and I mean, people, people were super, super nice to me in China. Cause like, here I am. It's like, you know, American slash Israeli guy, clearly not Chinese speaking to them. And first they sort of fall over. And second of all, then they fall over themselves to be nice to me. And so, you know, uh, even if I didn't quite understand them, they would really make efforts to try to make it more understandable or speak more slowly. And I just had dozens, dozens, hundreds of these aha moments each time, whether it was with the structure of the language or pronunciation. And it was thanks to people being sort of kind about it. Yeah. So to sort of bring it back to, to programming a bit, when people ask you a question because they don't understand, like, <laughs> it's so easy to say, but it's so obvious. Guess what? It's not obvious to people when they're starting. Right. Right. And so I, I think one of the, the really learning Chinese has been a great thing for my teaching of programming, because it reminds me what it's like to be in the position of being a student, not understanding, being curious, wanting to learn, and just not quite having all the pieces together yet to be able to make sense of it all. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I was learning French back in you know high school and then in college, and then I finally did a trip to France. And I was with my parents this a long time ago. And, and 
it, you know, where I was like around the hotel, I would try to speak French to them and they would just not, they were, they would not have it. <laughs> they would just speak English to me. It was like, they were just sick of like tourists trying to do that. So then eventually I went off the beaten path and I went to like stores and a mall and kind of went out into the city of Paris and people there were like way more interested in me trying to speak uh, French to them and, and working with me and, you know, kind of coming up with ideas that was really kind of neat. And so... I was at the time, I had an Atari ST. I don't know if you remember those computers. Of course, sure. And uh, they were more popular in Europe, in my opinion, than in the U.S. And there were pieces of software that were only available there. So I was literally searching for like this graphics program that was only sold in in uh, the European market. And so I found it there, which is really cool. Wow. It was like an art program to do... Um, it was called... ZZ Rough it was the name of it back in the day, but it could do like multiple pens and then the pen strokes as you went over them, it would it would know that it was being, you know, it wouldn't just occlude it. It would like kind of combine the colors and it did all this kind of cool stuff. And so it was unique at the time. And so it was it was fun to go and <laughs> and search that out and and uh speak and practice the language. And I feel like that's something that is kind of a, a hard thing right now for a lot of people learning at home is finding that kind of combination of Okay, well, I can you know, read books and I can watch online tutorials or I can listen to podcasts, but having that other person to ask the questions to and, and interact with is something that is you know, something else that they may need, you know, <laughs> to like build on top of it. So that's neat that you have that kind of combination, and that's something that else that you do, right? That you have kind of like a online courses where it's like a weekly course. Is that right? I mean, I have a bunch of online courses. Some are just sort of straight video courses. They always have exercises in them. But, you know, so, you know, whether it's a course on iterators and generators or a course on Python objects, that sort of thing. Right. But then I also have a bunch of courses called Weekly Python Exercise, which is, shockingly enough, a weekly Python exercise. And the idea is um, there's six different cohorts, each of which is 15 weeks long. And the idea is on Tuesday, you get the problem. The following Monday, you get the solution. And in between, we have a forum where people can go and ask me questions, but also ask each other questions. And we have this tradition now, it's been going for a few years, of people posting their code and everyone else saying, oh, I learned this from you, I learned this from you. Like, and so everyone's sort of, you've got this community learning thing going on, which just makes me super, super happy. We have that a little bit with at Real Python, where we have our, our online forums and like kind of a Slack thing where people post questions and and so forth. Um, this is nice because it's totally what you're doing is you know a specific assignment and then you know obviously a forum that's about that assignment, which is cool. But like seeing other people's solutions is so useful. <laughs> Right, right. And people then say, oh, I've now modified my solution because of what so-and-so wrote. Let me try again. And so it's it's this combination of everything together. It's like, you, get, you got the problem, I give them PyTest tests so they can have a, a standard to go against, although they constantly find problems with my tests. And so I'm constantly improving there too and learning quite a bit. And I have office hours once a month. So when people have questions that are a little harder for them to understand, or they just want to sort of get some general background, then we can chat about it. And it's a combination of like learning experiences that, that has really been fun, fun and exciting for me as well. I mean, there are all these people I've met from around the world who are learning Python or trying to improve their Python. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It covers one of the main topics we discussed this week, and it's titled Python Generators 101. The course is based on a real Python article by previous podcast guest Kyle Stratus. And in the course, instructor Christian Mondorf takes you through what generators are and how to use them, how to create generator functions and expressions, how the Python yield statement works, how to use multiple Python yield statements in a generator function, how to use advanced generator methods, and how to build data pipelines with multiple generators. 
I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how to use generators in your own code, whether it's to load data in more efficient chunks or to create a generator to act as a coroutine. And like most of the video courses on RailPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections and includes code samples for the techniques shown. It also has a shiny new transcript and closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. When I was looking at your biography and information that was on your, your website, it mentioned that you have a bachelor's in computer science, but then you have a PhD in learning sciences. And I thought that was really interesting that you went back to school for learning. And what did you, what did you find in that experience and how's that helped you in teaching? <laughs> so the story is basically, I had been consulting, I guess. I had been consulting company for about eight years at that point. And I was beginning to feel a little burnt out. I was doing all these projects. And I mean, I think you said you've done consulting. Like the way consulting projects end is, oh, we've run out of money. Or, oh, we're angry with each other. Or like it all, it always kind of fizzles out. There's never a hurrah, we're done. We love each other. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I was feeling a little down about this. And I spoke to a friend, uh, a family friend who's a professor. And he said, listen, what you should try to do is like go to grad school. You'll get a PhD. Your mind will be open to all sorts of new ideas. You'll meet all sorts of amazing people. And you're going to come back with all sorts of new directions and refreshed and so on and so forth. So I said, you know, that's, that sounds good. I, I can do a PhD, right? Sure. And so, but but talking to my wife about it, I decided I'm not interested in doing a straight CS PhD. Like, there are plenty of people who can make operating systems or databases or programming languages better or faster or whatever. I, I want to do something a little different. And I'd always been interested in learning, in children, in teaching. And so I, I found a few programs that combined education and technology in various ways. And so the Learning Sciences Program at Northwestern is actually a, a pretty positive. It's the first learning sciences program anywhere, although now it's, it exists in a bunch of places. And it's this combination of computer science and cognitive science and design, all for educational purposes. And my uh, research group was sort of the, the nerd group, or the nerdiest of the groups there. You might have heard the logo programming language from back in the day. Sure. Yeah, I do. So yeah, so my advisor's advisor invented Logo, and my advisor invented a modeling system, like a computer simulation system, called NetLogo, which has not one turtle, but hundreds or thousands of turtles, and they interact with each other, and it's like an agent-based modeling system. It's truly an amazing, amazing system. So I built a collaboration system for NetLogo models. So basically, and then I analyzed sort of what is the collaboration looking like, how does it work, what can we do to improve the design to facilitate collaboration. So that was like what I spent time on my dissertation doing for an awfully long time. My children will never, ever do a PhD. They're like emotionally scarred from what I went through vicariously. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, even though it was very difficult, um, and anyone listening to this who wants to do a PhD, talk to me first, please. Or a therapist. They might be cheaper. No, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and basically, I learned a ton about learning and teaching and what research says and how things work. And that has definitely influenced my teaching a lot in terms of the giving exercises and lots of them. In terms of uh, when I uh, having people present their answers. I can't do this in all my courses because sometimes we're just limited in terms of time. But I have this thing called the Python practice workshop that I do with, with companies. That's sort of an in-person version of weekly Python exercise where every 45 minutes or so I give them a new exercise. But instead of me going over the answer, I have different people present their solutions, sort of like in the forum. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. 
And it's amazing. It's amazing because everyone has different suggestions and ideas and thoughts, and we all learn from each other. I certainly learned a lot from that. And so I, I really, and, and this whole idea, there's a, a concept in education known as transfer. And the idea is that you learn something and you remember it, understand it in the context where you learned it. And the classic example is you learn math in school. You might be great at math in school, but then you get the real world. You don't know how to use it because you're decontextualized. And so the way to avoid this transfer problem or encourage transfer is to have lots of different experiences in lots of different ways. And so I try to vary my exercises in terms of theme, in terms of length, in terms of topic, so that there's a greater chance, never be 100%, but a greater chance that they'll have a, a better sense of what's going on and be able to apply it in their work. Yeah, I could see how that would be useful, like the idea of like sort of absorbing different concepts at different speeds and different rates. And I know in this experience right now of dealing with 2020 in general, it's like, okay, I feel like today I can handle a really large problem. <laughs> but there are other days where like, I cannot handle a large problem right now and I need to vary it up and, you know, dive into different things. And and your ability to, you know, like I always feel like Python is just such a great language just for problem solving in general. And so I think the exercises is a good way to kind of you know, not only practice that, but like those are things that you could save later and and retrieve, even you know, save it in like Git or something like that, and say, okay, well, I I worked on a little problem about this and had to solve something, and I think that's really a powerful tool and general for learning. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. And look, I do it myself, right? Like you know, I I I'm not necessarily doing the exercises that I come up with, but I'm constantly, if I want to learn something, I try to do a little you know, playing with it, understanding it, really really sort of doing something with it. So that I can understand it well enough to that well, you know, as part of my work to explain it. Yeah, one of the things I was wondering about is, you know, we we've talked about you learning language and learning Chinese, and then we've talked about you going back to school and all these techniques kind of coming back uh, through your PhD program. In general, after that has passed, what are different techniques that you have found that are useful to keep yourself learning? In the case of Python, like learning new concepts in it and diving deeper into it, what what are tools that you're using to keep learning? First of all, I'm always just sort of experimenting. I'm always saying, well, oh, I always want to know about this. And often those experiments are inspired by questions my students ask, right? I have this sort of advantage, you know, professional advantage that I'm constantly being peppered by, uh, by questions. And often I don't know the answer. So it's like, oh, that is a good question. I wonder why this works in this way or this way or this way. Right. Where I know less, I mean, I teach intro data science classes, and I feel pretty confident about what I teach. But, you know, data science is a really, really, really big <laughs> field. And even the professionals who are steeped in it, like, they're, <laughs> like, they're always saying, we have to learn all the time just to keep up. So given that I'm not doing it full time, I'm always trying to learn new stuff. And so I read books, I read blogs. I watch tutorials. Uh, I watch a lot of conference talks, or I try to watch a lot of conference talks. There's so many out there. The fact that they're now available online is fantastic. Yes. And then I try to do little experiments on my own. Like, oh, I wonder what would happen if I tried this and this and this. There are also some great YouTube videos out there. Really, there's some people who are just like brilliant, brilliant at explaining things who have put their stuff up on YouTube. Uh, Louis Serrano, I recently discovered him. I don't know how. I had never heard of him before, but truly fantastic explanations of some of these machine learning concepts. Oh, awesome. That's great. We'll definitely include links to that stuff in the show notes. I agree with the the concept of when you're teaching and getting those questions brought to you, you know, it reinforces that idea if you really want to learn something to try to teach it, because sometimes you have to explain it 
five or six different ways, you know? And uh, I think that's really kind of powerful in the sense that you're like, oh, okay, I haven't thought about it from this angle. It's like, okay, let's explore that or maybe I'll have to come back to you and have to research it and figure out what's going on. And now you have this kind of curious purpose, you know, which sometimes isn't there. And uh, the students can provide that, which is really powerful. Yeah, my um, I, I years ago someone said there the, and I sometimes told this to my students. There are two types of questions: good questions and excellent questions. A good question is one where the student does not know the answer. An excellent question is one where the teacher does not know the answer. And I was like, that's right. Those are the best, right? Because if I have to go do homework and learn more, first of all, I get excited about learning. Like that's what makes my job interesting. And second of all, I, I think it's important also to show them that I'm still learning. That I don't know everything. Right, that we're all in the same boat. I just might be a little ahead of them because I, I just spent the time at it, and they can totally get there as well. Yeah, totally. That's great. What are the types of areas that you've been focusing on in data science? So I'm trying to really nail down my understanding of a bunch of algorithms. I feel like I've been sort of hand waving with a bunch of them for a long time. Like I understand them, I understand what they do, but can I really articulate when you would use one versus the other? And also, just like scikit-learn has so much in it. Like I still remember sort of looking at the webpage the first time for scikit-learn and hearing people say, oh, it's so easy to understand and thinking to myself, what are they talking about? I don't even understand like the words they're using in their explanations, let alone like what they're trying to explain. And so now it's you know, pretty straightforward for me to go in and read it and understand. I mean, it's not like, oh, it's not like read a comic book or something, right? Like it still requires thinking, but I really want to so I'm spending some time now trying to really dive into some of these algorithms, make sure I can really understand them in a more nuanced way, understand how they're implemented, and be able to explain that better to my students also. But then I'm trying like different directions as well. So like I recently decided, because I have so much time, right? Uh, <laughs> I recently decided that I, 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 like the time has come for me to actually try, once again, doing a low-level language. And I've heard so many amazing things about Rust. And I know that you can take Rust and write Python modules with it instead of using C. I mean, I'm one of these people who I didn't learn C in college. Uh, the computer science department at MIT teaches you Lisp. And nowadays they teach Python, actually. But they taught us Lisp. If you want to study C, you had to go to, I believe it was the civil engineering department, where like those heathens and, uh, <laughs> and apostates could, could do their C stuff. So I used a bit of C in my first job. And I was terrible at it. And I hated it. I'm just like, I never got pointers. Never, never. So I've been burned by that and turned off to that. But Rust is supposed to be fantastic. So I've started like diving my toes in very, very, very little bit. But I'm sort of excited to see where I can go with that as well. We haven't mentioned it yet, but you do a podcast. I don't know if you're the host, but you're a regular guest on it. Is that right? So uh, there are six of us who co-founded the podcast together, The Business of Freelancing. And we're all like co-hosts, co-owners, co-everything. co <laughs> There you go. <laughs> It's great. It's called the, the Business of Freelancing. Like I'd done a, a freelancing podcast before that for about four or five years, The Freelancer Show. And uh, all of us on the panel uh, left to do our own thing, I guess about a year ago it was. It took a little while to, to ramp up. And um, the idea is that so many people are interested, perhaps, in freelancing. And they're really good at doing something. So in the case of like this podcast audience, you might be a really great developer, a really great data scientist. But what do you know about running a business? By the way, when I started my business, what did I know about it? Nothing. Nothing at all. Uh, <laughs> and it's sort of a, a, a miracle of the modern world that I've you know, managed to survive for this long. 
So, so the point of the podcast is help people with the business ideas. How, how do you find clients? How do you make agreements? How do you deal with taxes? How do you deal with marketing yourself? Uh, how do you use a mailing list? All these different things that those of us, like, I, I think I've been in business close to the longest, not the longest of all the panelists, but we rage in age, experience, areas of expertise, areas of business, like you name it. And so we're all sort of great. We have great fun, but usually about two to four of us on a given episode. And we have guests as well. We've been interviewing some people who've written amazing books. It's great fun for me because like I get to read a great book and then interview the author. I mean, and and, and the, the my co-hosts often give me incredible, incredible insights into my own business and what and how I should be doing things. That's great. I found that useful to have so many varied group of people to you know discuss these topics. They're all going to bring something unique to the table. It's been really fun for me as a just doing this podcast in general, uh, meeting all these different people and having multiple guests at a time is kind of a fun way to kind of spark a really, you didn't imagine where the conversation was going to go. So I could imagine having, you know, three or four or five people talk, you know, talking on a podcast, as long as it doesn't get too raucous, right. <laughs> that it could be really, really useful to uh, elucidate all these additional ideas. And like you said, they're all different backgrounds, right? Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, we've got someone who does websites, another person who does content marketing, another person who does freelancer uh, testimonials. And so we're sort of all over the place. We're also, we're also like, I think we also ex- respect each other's uh, experience in different areas quite a bit. And so it's it's fun to sort of be able to sit back and say, oh, wow, like that, I, I've learned a lot there. I should try that in my business. Yeah. So I have a couple of questions that are sort of my weekly questions. And one you already kind of, we dove into really deep, which is like, you know, what do you want to learn next? I feel like we've kind of <laughs> <laughs> gone pretty deep into that one, uh, talking about you learning Chinese and then also like the data science stuff and then your new book on, on pandas that you're working on. But this one is one that I have kind of brought back and forth depending on who I'm talking to. And I, I thought it'd be a good one for you to kind of cover. And this is, what is something you thought you knew in Python but turned out you were wrong about it. Oh, so for years, I didn't quite understand attributes. I didn't understand that there's a big difference between variables and attributes, attributes being like anything after a dot. And so I've been on this crusade now for a few years that like, if I didn't get this and I was working with Python for so many years, oh my goodness, I'm going to teach everyone I know about attributes and how they work. And because once you understand how attributes work, suddenly like everything falls into place. The attribute lookup, it it, it explains objects, it explains methods, it explains inheritance, explains even like uh, deeper things such as uh, the, the descriptor protocol. It all comes down to the attributes. So I, I've, yeah, I've been speaking about it. I've tried to actually propose a bunch of conference talks on attributes, and I think whoever reads them is like rolling their eyes, saying, "Oh my God, why don't you just propose a talk on watching grass grow or paint dry?" Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I've had to juice it up a little bit to try to sneak it in in other conference talks, but uh, I'll, I'll get there one day. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I, I would watch that. That'd be interesting to me. I, I know it seems like a, a simple concept, but I can completely understand that that there's a lot of depth to it and and it's so fundamental to you know Python in general. <laughs> if there's so many of these sort of built-in hidden sort of attributes that like you know a lot of people don't even know that they're there that that kind of you know with everything being an object, you know, it's kind of wild to think about like, okay, well what are like just to hit like the uh oh what's the term? It's not dictionary, but like to be able to bring up you know, a list of like, what are all the attributes of this thing that I just, you know, right. created, <laughs> you know, like a string or what have you. Yeah. So yeah, it's cool. 
What, what's something that helped you in, in learning that? I wish I knew. Like, it's been a few years now, but like, I just kept exploring it. I, I think people in my classes would ask me questions and I'd be like, oh, right. Like, how is it that a method sits on the class, but we call it from the instance and yet it works? Like, huh? <laughs> I thought Python was supposed to be straightforward. I thought we weren't supposed to have any magic in this language. And suddenly, like, it's very magical and confusing. And, and how are these, how's the instance getting rewritten to be self? Right? And so for a long time, I would just sort of accept it. Oh, this is the way it works. Of course, when I call a method, the, the instance is just rewritten to be the first argument. And then I feel like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> like, like, oh, it just gets rewritten. We're not supposed to do that in Python. And so I think it was just like so, sort of slow, gentle grinding and trying to figure out what was going on. There wasn't any one place that explained it to me, um, which is part of the reason why I'm on this crusade, because like, you know, people should ex- understand how this works and it makes things so much clearer. Yeah. Cool. What's something that you're excited about in the world of Python? It could be like a conference or a book or a package or some other kind of tool that you're interested in. Well, I'm generally interested, excited about maybe hopefully one day we will actually have conferences in person. I must say, like, PyCon in person was just, and especially like when I had a booth, like people warned me, oh, you have a booth, you're going to be like so tired. I was so energized spending eight hours talking to people and giving out t-shirts. Oh my God. It was, it was great. It was great. And like seeing people and seeing friends during the hallway. But like in general, um, Look, I think I'm just generally excited to see Python actually catching on and being considered a real language. For so, so many years, people people would sort of look down their noses at anyone who used a high-level language. Oh, you're using a scripting language. Why don't you, like, I'll speak slowly so you understand uh, <laughs> that sort wow. of attitude. Um, and they, they just, like, didn't appreciate that just because it's easy to use doesn't make it less powerful. And the fact that now all these companies around the world are not only seeing that Python is possible, but is crucial to their businesses is just uh, amazing to me. I mean, I've been using Python since like 92, 93. And <laughs> like the, the notion that these Fortune 100 companies are desperately looking for Python developers for their mission critical stuff is amazing. But like, and more concretely, I continue to be amazed by the people who do PIP and PyPI. Those folks are like unsung heroes who work really hard. They're very serious. I did a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of work on that stuff at a sprint, I guess it was about a year and a half ago now at PyCon. And I just came away in awe of all the issues they deal with and provide to us as a community that we don't even think about. Yeah, I had um, Sumina and um, a couple other people from PIP uh, talking about you know wanting to get feedback on all the development that they've been doing, they, they've had this like real sprint for the last year of trying to fix some of the user experience stuff with PIP and the whole change in the resolver and all that's kind of all stuff that seems so behind the scenes for a lot of people that just simply oh just you pip install it's like well there's a huge amount of work has gone into that and a huge amount of work has gone into PyPI. And uh, it's 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 cool. It was it was a neat episode, and uh, I learned a lot in that process. And um, I'll include links again for people if they're interested. And in, you know, they're constantly asking for for feedback, and and they you know, want help in continuing to develop these tools for everyone. No, they're amazing. They're absolutely amazing. Someone uh, like totally blew me away. I, I I saw her. I'd heard about her, and then I saw her like running that sprint. I said, "Wow!" Like <laughs> this is like a like a, a case study in how to be an effective manager and leader. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, we, we started by talking about your, your PyCon 2020 Africa talk. Um, have you done lots of talks this year at all, like in 2020? Or is that a common thing for you to do talks? So I love giving talks at conferences, but like for years, I didn't really travel that much for conferences because I was traveling doing other stuff. I finally decided, you know what, I'm going to do that. So last year in 2019, I was at both PyCon and EuroPython. I found out about PyCon Africa too late. I really wanted to go to Ghana. Um, and then I was like, oh, I'll go in 2020. Ha ha, jokes on us in 2020. Uh, <laughs> and so the, like, the, the upside has been that I can participate in lots of conferences all over because you don't have to really go anywhere. So I gave a talk at Pi Bay, Bay Area. I gave a talk at, I wish I could remember their name, a conference in Russia. And I'm going to be giving a talk actually later this week, which is, I guess, in the past, uh, for the, the, when the podcast will come out, to a conference called Geekle. I am loving it. I've also given some talks to user groups. So I gave you a talk, like, because all the user group meetings are online, right? So I gave a talk from my home office in Israel to the Dallas-Fort Worth Data Science Group and to Chicago Python. I think they pronounce it Chipi, Chipi, Chippy, Chippy. Don't kill me, guys. It was really nice. And I'm, I'm, to- I'm totally open. Like, I, I love it. I love meeting people. I love giving, having a chance to, like, share this information. And it's just like, it's just super, super fun for me. Yeah, no, that's great. You know, it's kind of a, a neat thing. And then you were talking about learning from them. And I was talking to Al Swigert about that idea. And he, he had this idea of combining, kind of developing a curriculum of, well, what order should you watch these in? <laughs> you know, if you were interested in this particular topic, like, okay, watch this one from 2016 that gets you into this concept. And then what would really build on it would be this one and this one and so forth. And I, I thought that was really powerful. And he hasn't, you know, completed it, but it's something that he's been thinking about and, and I've been thinking about too. And it's been a common tool for me to find guests is like, you know, find like a, a topic that that we could kind of discuss and then kind of dive into the other things that they do. And it's been really great. I've definitely taken advantage of all the stuff being online, though I'm totally itching for uh, <laughs> getting out there in the real world and, and uh, meeting some people in person and you know, traveling again. So I'm um, so 2021 starts to shape up here. It looks like it is. So we can hope. We can hope. Yeah, I mean, I love I love traveling so much. I mean, uh, also like when I travel for like teaching, when I travel for for work, I often try to get in touch with Python user groups or open source user groups. So I've like given talks in Beijing and Shanghai and like. Uh, Hyderabad in the past, which was always like great fun. Get to meet the locals, so I'm 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 really looking forward to that at some point soon, but uh, or soon-ish on a geological timescale. Yeah, well, it's been so great having you on here. Thanks for sharing all your knowledge with us, Christopher. It's super fun to be on with you. Thanks again to Scout APM, and don't forget the added bonus for Real Python listeners. Scout APM will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash realpython. I want to thank again, Reuven Lerner, for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.